0: All right, well, we are now within the last few weeks, really the last month of the year 2020. I've been doing some reflecting back over this year, and there is a lot to process. One of the things that I've been thinking of is where we've come from, what, we, what we've what we gone through as a church. We started this year, 2020, with a theme for the year. Our theme was Christ in Us. We wanted to focus on Unity. We, being a diverse people, will pursue Christ. Will pursue unity while focusing on Christ. We had two key passages coming into this year that we wanted to really focus on, maybe memorize some of it, I would preach through, and these would kind of guide the way for us as we pursue unity. Can you remember what the key passages are? I'll give you a second. The first one comes from John chapter 17. John 17 is a prayer that Jesus offers right before he is crucified. It's unique to the Gospel of John. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's kind of a lengthy prayer. It's known as the High Priestly Prayer. And I want to read through it again, discipline ourselves to hear the text, listen to it, read it, however you want to do this. I'm not going to read it. Briggs Burt is going to read it for us, and I appreciate Briggs doing this. So follow along, close your eyes and listen, or grab a text and follow along, but listen to what Jesus prays for. And then kind of think about this theme of unity, and I'll pass it on to Brooks.
1: Morning, Pine Tree. I'll be reading the High Priestly Prayer this morning. That's John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All right, thank you
0: Briggs for reading John chapter 17 for us. And you might notice in that prayer that Jesus prays for a lot of things. There's a lot of words in this prayer in verse 11 and then again in verse 20 through 23 Jesus prays for his followers to be one, to be brought to to unity. And I'm going to try to speak into that, but before I I really get more into this prayer, let me tell you about some of my own journey. About 20 years ago when I was in high school, I think it was 1999 or maybe it was the year 2000, we sat at a big lunch table with a lot of my friends. And several guys uh, from that went to church with me that were part of my youth group were at that table, but then there was also several of our friends from school who went to other churches. And we wound up getting into some arguments, some heated debates about which church was the right church. And this went on for weeks. And it seemed to intensify as the arguments went on. And because we were a bunch of guys, a bunch of teenage guys, somehow, someway, we came up with the decision to settle our ecclesiological and our theological differences in a game of tackle football. So we set a date on a Saturday. And it was a few weeks out when we set the date. We hyped up the game to other students. So we had a small crowd gathered on the day of the game and then we started the big game to see which church was the right church it started off fun it started off competitive but as you can imagine without much adult supervision without any referees uh, there's some cheap shots there were some kind of some violent moments and then it broke out into fights and things were just not going well and I think we had a few adults show up, if I remember correctly, and they shut us down and told us to go home, and the game ended. And we, I don't really remember having a winner, so I guess we never figured out which church was right. I don't know why we thought settling that dispute in a game of tackle football was the solution. But I do remember being uncomfortable with what felt like uh, so much confrontation and anger and all that, I was uncomfortable with it because I was like, well, these guys are my friends. I go to school with them. We play football together. We have classes together. We sit at the same lunch table. Why are we fighting so much? And then I realized, kind of an early age as a teenager, that as human beings, we do not do a good job of disagreeing with each other. We don't disagree very well. Usually if somebody is different or has a different opinion or a different thought, it winds up turning into a pretty strong argument, which leads to division and dissension. Uh, That was 20 years ago, that football game. And now you fast forward to the year 2020. And one of the most unsettling things for me this year has been the amount of disunity, division, dissension, fighting, arguing. And there's three big areas that I've seen this year where people really like to fight and argue about. One is political stuff. So it's an election year. You got Republicans versus Democrats. That's been a big deal. It's kind of calmed down in the last few weeks. We've also had um, some racial issues, racial tension, social unrest that's caused a lot of arguing and division, and then obviously covid with what to do. Should we wear masks or not wear masks? Some people were saying this was just some sort of uh, conspiracy theory. You know, there's been all sorts of fighting and arguing about COVID, about political issues, about racial tensions and social unrest. And I haven't seen anybody on social media offer to play a a game of tackle football to settle the issues. But the way that people talk to each other or at each other or past each other, it's almost like They're ready to go to blows. And that's how the year has kind of been. I thought that football game that I played 20 years ago to try to settle our church differences was intense. But this year, this year has made me very uncomfortable. Now I'll say all that and I come back to this prayer that we read from John 17. And right before Jesus dies, he prays for unity. He prays for his believers, his followers to be one. It seems like kind of a lofty prayer a very dreamy prayer. Can, I guess the question is, can Jesus' prayer ever really be answered? I don't know if any of you have noticed this or not, but our, our first Sunday back in the building after we had shut down in the spring was June 7th. And from June 7th on, every time we met at the church building, in the auditorium, I said the opening prayer for our worship service. And in every single one of those worship services that I led the opening prayer, I prayed for unity. I prayed for us to be one so maybe we could show the world around us who Jesus is and what unity looks like and and maybe be an example for unity. I prayed for unity in our culture, in our country. Every Sunday I prayed for unity and I will be completely honest with you right now. I don't really know what I'm praying for, to be honest. I don't know what that would look like if that prayer were answered. But I believe that we should pray for unity because Jesus did. And Jesus felt it was this important to pray for it right before he was crucified. So we should join Jesus in that prayer. So that's what I've done every Sunday. And I just hope and pray that the Spirit of God is working and will lead us to that and show us what unity may look like. So you have this prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. And if you take a little trip through the New Testament, you can move on to the book of Acts. If you're looking at the book of Acts, if you have a Bible, you could look at the end of Acts chapter 2 and the end of Acts chapter 4. Luke is writing the book of Acts, and he gives us what we would call a snapshot of the early church, like the birth of this early church, and this is what they look like, this is how they behaved. In Acts chapter 2, he tells us that all the believers were together in one place, and they had everything in common. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, it sounds like a utopia. They had everything in common. There were no In Acts chapter 4, we're told there were no needy persons among them because people would sell possessions. They would share with each other. They shared everything. And then in Acts chapter 4, at the end of Acts 4, it tells us that they were one heart and one soul. If you stopped at the end of Acts chapter 4, you would think that prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, it was answered. It came true. They were one, one heart, one soul, sharing everything, having everything in common. So stop there, and his prayer is answered. But you keep reading the book of Acts, and you quickly see division, dissension, disunity. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, there's a problem within the church. There's a daily distribution of food, and the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in favor of the Hebrew widows. There's problem number one, and they work together to creatively solve the problem and send out special servants to make sure all the widows are getting food. But then you keep reading in the book of Acts of this early church, they face persecution, they're scattered, and by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, there's a big council meeting, kind of like a big elders meeting, to decide what to do about this problem, this divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians, or at least some of them, were teaching Gentile Christians that in order to really be a follower of Jesus and be saved, you had to first convert to becoming a Jew, and then you could be a Christian. So they met with this big council in Acts chapter 15 to decide how to handle the situation. What do we need to ask these Gentile people to do? And So you can just kind of see that in Acts 2 and 4, it seems like Jesus' prayer is answered, but then you keep reading and we just see a lot of division, a lot of disunity. And the church is constantly, ever since then, been working towards solving some of these, what I called earlier in the year, people problems and learning to work together and extend grace towards each other and forgiveness and give a little bit here or there. If you kept reading in the New Testament and you read through, the Apostle Paul writes a lot of letters. Letters. And one of the main themes that Paul deals with in his letters is unity. He may not always use the word unity, but you can tell that what Paul is trying to do is unify people coming from vastly different backgrounds. Jews, Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, all types of people coming together, and Paul is desperately urging these churches to be unified. So our other key passage for the year 2020 comes from one of Paul's letters, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. I actually did a whole sermon series on Ephesians 4 back in July. And just like John 17, I want to read it one more time as we wrap up this year. And instead of me reading it, I asked Slade Morris if he would read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, so if you want to listen, then listen and soak in the text. If you want to follow along, if you have a copy of the text, uh, follow along and let's take in the Word of God right now. Ephesians 4, 1-16. Ephesians
2: chapter 4, verses 1-16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work.
0: All right, thank you Slade for reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Clearly, that passage, those 16 verses, the theme is unity. A few weeks ago, I was putting my son to bed, and usually when I put him to bed at night, I'll tell him a story to help him fall asleep, and he is, he's a troubled sleeper like I am. It takes a while for him to go to sleep. Sometimes I'll tell him a story that I make up, and then sometimes we'll let him listen to podcasts. There's like a Blue's Clues podcast, and there's other little bedtime children's stories that you can listen to. And they're usually short, about eight to ten minutes long. And one night a few weeks ago, I was putting him to bed, and he wanted to listen to a podcast. I said, you got one podcast, and then I'm leaving your room. He wanted it to be a longer podcast, so I'd stay in there. So guess what he requested? He said, can we listen to one of your sermons? I was like, sure. You want to listen to one of my sermons? We'll do that. So that's what he wanted that night, was to listen to one of my sermons to help put him to sleep. I don't know how to feel about that, but I granted his request, and I just randomly picked July 5th, 2020, a sermon I did several months ago. And that sermon was the first in a four-part series on Ephesians 4, and I focused on verses 1 through 3 in that sermon. And as I was re-listening to it, which, by the way, examining myself, listening to myself preach is really painful, all preachers will tell you that. But I noticed that in that sermon, I said, I'm going to define unity. And I found myself listening to it while putting my son to bed, thinking I was interested. I was like, how do you define unity? I forgot what the definition of unity is. And then I thought, well, if I can't remember how I define unity, and I preached it, and I studied it, and I reviewed it over and over, there's a chance you may not remember either. So I want to share with you again the definition of unity. Unity. And I think this is a helpful definition, and it comes from the Holman Bible Dictionary. Here's their definition. Christian unity has various aspects. The shared experience of Christ as Lord and confession of Christ in baptism. The shared sense of mission. And the shared concern for one another and the shared experience of suffering for Jesus' sake. For some reason, definitions just kind of help me. If we're going to use a word like unity a lot, let's define what it is. And I like this definition that the Holman Bible Dictionary gives because it kind of gives me something to work with. In Ephesians 4 1 through 16, seven different times Paul uses the word one in verse 4 through 6. And then in verse 3 and in verse 13, Paul uses this word unity. So clearly in John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer and in Ephesians 4 and most of Paul's letters, this theme of unity keeps coming up. It's very important. But how do we pursue unity in a divided world? I've already mentioned that I'm not 100% sure what this would even look like if our prayer were answered. But I do know as a church that one of the ways that we've tried to pursue Jesus together, pursue unity together, has been through these, what we call church-wide challenges, or I'm leaning more towards calling them shared spiritual experiences. If you come to this church, you can probably expect, at least maybe once a month or once a quarter, that we're going to challenge you to do something, some sort of spiritual discipline or reading or prayer-type discipline or some challenge you can expect that from us, and then we also expect that from you if you attend our church or even come as a guest or a visitor, that we want to challenge you. And we've done that over the last few years. It's kind of developing, hopefully becoming a part of our DNA as a church. We've, we've done some reading plans together. Before I even got to Pine Tree, y'all were reading through the Bible together. Earlier this year, we read through the Gospels together from January 1 till Easter Sunday. We did a Proverbs reading plan. Right now, we have a December Bible reading plan. And starting 2021, we have another reading plan that will kind of fit with the sermon series. So we we read the Bible together. We challenge each other to read the same text, which I think can be a beautiful thing because you can talk with your spouse about what you're reading. You can talk with your family, your kids. You can talk with your small group, your Bible class, your friends from church. And then I can preach on it. And we're all kind of soaking in the text together together and seeing how God can work on us through that. We've done other challenges. We've done some challenges to last year to do acts of kindness and share it with your small group. We did a challenge a few years ago called What You are Gonna Quit, to quit some bad habit for 10 days and then share your experience with others and how that went. We've done other challenges along the way. We did 15 minutes of silence, like try sitting in silence for set a timer and eliminating distractions and seeing how God will work on you through that. Well, you kind of get the point. These are shared spiritual experiences or church-wide challenges, and we've done this together as a church to try to pursue Jesus together in a, as a unified body. How can we be one? How can we pursue unity when we're all so different from each other? We all have different passions. Some of us have different political views. We have different backgrounds. We have different hobbies. We have different ways of interpreting the Bible and interpreting what's going on in our culture around us. We are all different, but we can still pursue unity together. And one of the ways that we can do that is through these shared spiritual experiences or what I would call direction. Even though we're different, we're all headed in the same direction, headed towards Christ. Another way that we can pursue unity together as the body of Christ is just by simply praying for unity. Just like Jesus prays for in John chapter 17, we can also pray for that. I have prayed for that every Sunday since June seventh, and I can tell you this that the more I pray for unity, the more I find myself thinking, how can I be a part of the solution? How can I strive for unity within my family, within this church, within this culture? So the more I pray for it, the more it leads me to want to actually take action. So as a church, we can do this. We can share these spiritual experiences and head in the same direction towards Christ. We can pray for it. Those are two practical things that we can do. We may not be perfect in it, but we do know that pursuing unity is incredibly important, especially as you read the New Testament. We have seven commitments as a church, and our third commitment is this. We, being diverse, will pursue unity as we focus on Jesus. We will provide unified, godly leadership that communicates clear vision, demonstrates grace, and exemplifies boldness in following Jesus. We will develop a culture of grace, forgiving, forgiving as we have been forgiven, keeping no rep- record of wrongs, and bearing with one another in love. One thing that's clear from the New Testament is that unity is important. We should pray for it. We should pursue it. And kind of as a form of an invitation here, one thing that unifies us is our own sin and our need for God's grace. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul writes that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we don't want to live in sin anymore. We want to work on, through the Holy Spirit inside of us, being transformed. But we all come to Jesus at the same place. We're all sinners in need of God's grace, in need of the sacrifice that Jesus offered for us. We have that in common. And we can start there and move from there. Now, if you're sitting at home and you're thinking about your own life, and if we can help you in any way, We'd be glad to pray for you. Just reach out to us. I'll share my email and the elders' email here in just a second. If you have a desire to put on Christ in baptism, if you know your own sin and the only way to be saved is to be baptized into Christ, reach out to us. Send us an email. We can arrange that. Even though right now we're doing this worship at home, We've had baptisms go on throughout this year, even if we're not meeting at the building. We can still come up here. So reach out to us if you desire to be baptized or you want to start that conversation. Reach out to us if we can pray for you or help you in any way. My email address is jgarner at pinetreechurch.org. And you can also reach our elders at elders at pinetreechurch.org. Let's pursue unity together while focusing on Jesus.